Thought Leadership from PwC. There are obviously a number of judgments you need to make on the accounting policy side, making sure you really understand the terms and conditions of the credits. There's likely going to be some operational decisions that companies are going to have to think about too, maybe even to help them make an informed decision on which model. Hello, today we're back talking ESG, this time with a look at financial accounting for incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. In today's episode, we're going to cover a topic where sustainability matters and financial reporting intersect, and that's accounting for green incentives that arise from the Inflation Reduction Act. With so many types of credits available in the IRA, we're getting a lot of questions about the financial accounting implications given the unique features that these credits have compared to past federal incentives. We've asked Pat Durbin, a partner in our national office, and Jillian Pierce, a partner in our power and utilities practice, formerly of our national office, to spend some time sharing their perspectives on the models for the different types of credits, including both transferable credits and direct pay credits. I think you'll find our conversation insightful and hopefully useful, whether you've already started to transact for these credits or your company is considering doing so in the future. Definitely something you may want to understand before it lands on your desk. With that, here's our conversation. So Pat, Jillian, thanks so much for joining me for a topic I know we're starting to get a lot of questions about, and that's accounting for the various green energy incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. And Jillian, as we've talked about, this is definitely something that there's been a huge interest from the power and utilities industry. But actually, I think this act in particular, we've seen interest from all industries. And I know, Pat, you're getting questions from all industries. So i I think many of you of our listeners would have seen the segment in the webcast that we did, but that was obviously just a snippet of what we have to go into. So hopefully we can go in more depth today. Yeah, no, thanks, Heather. I mean, it's a, it's a timely topic because there are a lot of companies even beyond the power and utilities sector that are eligible for these credits. And 2023 is really when they're, they're kicking in. Um, it's also somewhat uncommon to see such broad-based sort of government incentives for to for-profit corporate entities, and we don't really have necessarily a lot of experience with that. Obviously, we saw some of it, but again, more maybe limited in scope with some of the COVID relief mm-hmm. packages, so we dealt with a little bit there. But this is different because of the way the credits are being administered through the tax code, so that creates some, some complexities. Um, and when the income tax accounting model applies versus some other guidance. So it's definitely a good topic and happy to be here. Good. Well, like I said, looking forward to it. I think last time we may have seen some similar things were after sort of the 2008 financial crisis, but even then those were much more limited in scope in terms of the the entities that were involved. But so Jillian, for our listeners who maybe are familiar with the IRA, but aren't either dealing with this directly or are their ears perked up when they heard that this actually applies to many industries. Can you just give us some basic background of what was included there and, and what some of the sort of key provisions people are looking at? Sure. Yeah. So, and at least as we're talking about the energy and climate related credits, because the IRA itself obviously has a lot of other things in yes. it. But if we focus just on that, I think there's really two main aspects. And and one, you and Pat were already alluding to a little bit, is really just the breadth of what's included in there, even in the sort of silo of these climate-related credits. So there's actually 13 individual credits that are included, and you know they range, sort of span the gamut, so to speak. There are investment tax credits, or ITCs, for um, incentivizing companies really to construct and build new assets to generate green type of activities or clean activities, things like, you know, storing carbon also for producing or or constructing, I should say, carbon neutral 
production of energy. So various technologies are, are in scope there. There's also some extensions of existing credits. So there have been in the past and prior tax regimes certain credits for production of some types of renewable energy. So if we think about solar and wind credits, there are actually some solar credits that had expired, I think, back in the mid-2000s. And so those types of credits have actually now been revived under the IRA and extended for a longer period of time. And then in addition to that, we've seen existing credits, but at a much higher dollar value. So one of the examples there is there have been some credits for sequestration of carbon dioxide, so really removing those emissions from the atmosphere. In the past, I think we've seen credits around maybe $50 a ton of CO2. And under the IRA, those credit amounts can go up to almost $85 a ton. So some significant increases there, which again, I think sort of also speak to the the breadth and the scope uh, really from an impact perspective that the IRA can have. And then lastly, there are some just brand new credits. So again, as we think about sort of what comprises those 13 There's some credits for producing nuclear energy, so that's something we haven't seen in the past. Also for producing various types of clean hydrogen. And then again, some manufacturing type credits. So not only just companies that are involved in producing energy, but even companies, you know, more on the traditional manufacturing side for specific types of components and parts there. And then the second piece I would highlight is just the structure of the credits that we're seeing under the IRA. The key there is most of them are sort of available at a base level, but then companies can actually receive up to five times those base amounts for meeting certain other criteria. And so we'll talk a little bit more, I think, later on some of those um, conditions or provisions. But again, as you think about sort of the impact that these credits can have, I think this tiered sort of bonus structure is really what's making a lot of these credits very attractive to a lot of companies across many different industries. Well, and I think, Jillian, the other thing where this sort of intersects with the conversation we've been having a lot on the podcast is when you think about ESG, sustainability, obviously the environmental, the E, climate, but there's also to the point you just made social aspects to these credits as well. And again, Pat, you may have seen these before, but I I just don't remember any, so like these types of credits at this scale, maybe you had low income housing and some things like that, but not such broad base types of credits in the past. Yeah. I mean, I think if you saw them, they'd typically maybe be in a very specific area of economic development, maybe at the state or local level. But certainly nothing in sort of a broad scale federal program like this. Yeah. So to maybe that's a good segue then to my next question for you, which is I also think the structure of these credits and the way you can get paid is also different than at least, again, what I would have been familiar with before. So can you run through that? Yeah, I, I do think that's a unique feature of these credits. And, you know, if you think about it, there are a lot of tax credits out there today. I mean, R&D credits, there are other, um, probably more at the the local level, some different types of credits and incentives. So, I mean, it's not brand new that you would use some sort of form of tax incentive to try to incentivize certain types of economic activity. But what's interesting here is two things. One, some of the credits are actually directly refundable. So even though they're expressed in the tax code, you don't necessarily need a tax liability to realize the value from them. And even for those that are technically only able to be used on a tax return, the law has introduced this opportunity for the party who generates the credit to be able to transfer the credit. So they may not have a tax liability, may not be able to realize the value from them, but they can transfer them to someone else who can. So um, I think those are sort of the two sort of pathways, if you will, to, to realization. It also has some implications on the accounting that we'll, we'll get into. For the most part, I would say the direct pay option tends to be available to a fairly narrow set of entities, um, typically those that may not even have a tax liability, so some not-for-profits, maybe some local governmental entities or you know co-ops. But there are a number of them that actually are available to commercial companies. So I think it's important that we hit on those, particularly in the solar space, the Section 45X credits. And we say sections here, we're talking about sections of the Internal Revenue Code. I know you guys sound like tax uh, no, practitioners. No, no, we're not, we're not Definitely tax people. Not. <laughs> we're not tax people. We're just trying to give some points of reference. If you want to you know, do the research on the, on the credits, have, have at it. And then on the transferable ones, 
those are sort of, I would say, more more broadly applicable. So obviously, if it can only be used on a tax return, then it's only going to have value if you have a tax liability. Mm-hmm. So logically, it would suggest it's only going to be available to companies that would typically have a tax liability. But for some of these companies, especially if they're trying to incentivize innovation, they may be earlier stage. They may not yet be at a point where they're generating taxable income. So the transferability option is is very attractive and allows them to then participate and enjoy some value from it. But that's a particularly new uh, flavor of credit that we haven't really seen. And that's probably the area that's raised most of the accounting questions that I think we wanted to get to today. Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point, historically, when we've had I'll call them these energy types of credits. If you didn't have taxable income, then the only way for you to really, I'll say, monetize them would be to introduce like tax equity partners or otherwise in pretty complex capital structures. So this, although I know there's complex questions from a business perspective, I also think in many ways is much more straightforward than maybe some of these structures that we've seen in the past. Yep. All right. So then, but I guess on the point about transferring and the fact that they do have to be, if you do transfer them, it has to be transferred for cash. I do have a follow-up question because I know that we are starting to see arrangements where either the customer is negotiating for the purchase of the credits from the supplier. At the same time, they're negotiating purchases of other goods or services. So put it a different way, these are not necessarily just like, oh, I'm doing all my building and construction with one group of parties and separately I'm selling my credits off. There's often interrelationships. And so are there issues, specific issues when you have those types of interrelationships that companies should be focused on? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, there, You're right. There is a requirement that the credits have to be transferred for cash, but there isn't really any specific parameters around how much cash. Um, there is this notion, um, specifically it, it is in the, the law as an anti-abuse anti-abuse provision that requires when you are transferring the credits and other products or services are being provided between the parties, that the allocation of the consideration between those other goods and services and the credits needs to be reasonable. So obviously that will ultimately be subject to audit, subject mm-hmm. to you know some potential retrospective evaluation, I think the notion being that there needs to be substantive consideration given and received for for the credits. And I think that's especially important because um, if you think about it, normally when you buy and sell things between third parties, somebody's going to pay tax on that. Explicitly, if you receive cash for the transfer of credits, that is not taxable to you. Um, because the buyer obviously mm. not going to get tax basis per se, they're just going to use that credit to reduce their cash tax obligation. So there needs to be some substance to that transaction, just given the special character that it has under the tax law. I guess maybe it might be helpful just to provide an example of these kind of monetization options to help bring the conversation to life. As I alluded to, some of these may have only one option: either it's direct pay or it's transferable. But there are some that contain an option, meaning you can choose either the direct pay option or the transferability option. And I I mentioned the Section 45X credit for the production of solar equipment. It's also available, I think, for companies who sell um, wind and other storage uh, equipment. The amount of the credit in this case is based on the volume of those components, the eligible components that are sold. So they're based on sort of the quantity, not the price or the Mm -hmm. value of the component. And in that case, when you produce these qualifying components, you have an option to either say, I want the direct pay option, or I'm going to, you know, elect either to use it on my return or, or transfer it. Once you elect a direct pay option in this case, it's available for five years. And then in any year subsequent, if the direct pay option is not available, um, the taxpayer could use either the, the credit on their own return or use the transferability option. So that would be sort of think of it as like year one, I get the credit. I decide I want direct pay. Well, now I'm stuck in that sort of direct pay model, which you're not really stuck. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a good place to be, yeah. right? You just get cash from <laughs> yeah. the government but you're there for five years, when that period lapses, then you'd be into, well, I can use it on my own return or I can transfer it. 
And that's kind of interesting, too, because now you've got the same credit, but you're potentially oh, monetizing two different ways. And so that's also kind of an accounting question that's that's come up as well. So two follow-up questions for you. I actually want to rewind almost the beginning, because as soon as you said allocation of consideration, my ears perked up because I feel like almost every time I talk to either you or someone on your team, allocation of consideration comes up not necessarily this context, but revenue contracts and, and other places. And so would you think of allocation of this consideration in a similar way that you would if you were dealing with revenue or otherwise? Or is this sort of a more, I'm going to use the word tax base, but some other basis that you would be thinking about? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question because I think the the notion here specifically under the IRA is there needs to be substantive cash consideration in the revenue context, we would normally say all of the other accounting frameworks come first mm-hmm. before you get to revenue, but we might not be in the income tax accounting space here. Um, income tax accounting, things are usually valued at their sort of notional amount. They're just whatever the stated amount of the credit or the item is. Obviously, outside of that, we're usually thinking more of a relative fair value concept. So, the exact mechanics of how people are going to think through the allocation, I don't think really has been been settled yet. I think there's going to be some reasonable interpretations around, do I want to think about relative fair value? Mm-hmm. Do I want to think about sort of more of a residual concept if I'm really using it on my tax return? Or, you know, is it some some other, you know, allocation model? So. I think we'll just have to wait to see a little bit how practice plays out there. All right. Well, definitely, though, sounds like you do want to be applying a model in terms of how you're thinking about this. It's I mean, I think this probably hopefully goes without saying, but it can't be an arbitrary assignment of of the allocation. And then my other follow up question is I do think this idea of the credits almost like changing character over time is one that's very interesting, but let's run through the models. And then I may come back to a follow-up question on that. Now, one thing though, before we get into the accounting is that our regular listeners on the podcast would be very familiar with me and actually Jillian previously being on and talking about renewable energy credits or renewable energy certificates, RECs, have a lot of different names. And I think it's very easy to say, oh, these are energy related credits. Those are energy credits. Maybe these models are the same, but I, I think it's very important to point out here that those are completely different than what we're talking about in terms of those typically a REC would represent the generation of one megawatt of renewable energy. And you do get certificates, but they're normally administered by some sort of region or otherwise. And they're used by companies, utilities, and others to show compliance with either um, requirements to generate renewable energy if you're a utility, or many companies will use them voluntarily. Unlike those, these are administered through the tax code. They're much broader. They may have some peripheral association with the generation of energy because of their um, investment tax credits or production tax credits. But otherwise, these are quite different because it's with the U.S. government. I don't know, Jillian, if you want to add anything? Yeah, I was going to say, well, and one quick plug for anybody that is interested in maybe the accounting for RECs. I think we have a podcast from... A couple years ago, Heather, where we talked about accounting for RECs and carbon offsets, so maybe that's a good one to check out. But as it relates to the IRA, again, I I think there are some similarities there, and that's one of the things I know, Pat, we've talked a lot about is sort of how do you thread the needle with some of these, because maybe some of the more black and white differences are starting to look a little bit more gray these days. Um, But I do think the one key distinction here is these IRA credits, someone can use them on their tax return Mm -hmm. to reduce their tax liability. And so that characteristic does not exist in things like RECs or or other types of instruments. And so again, despite some of the other monetization options, I think that fundamental core characteristic isn't important here as we think about the accounting too. All right, Jillian, well, I think that's helpful. And I definitely think it's sort of like a North Star as people are thinking about those, just you kind of go back to that idea of tax return is very helpful, even not for profits or otherwise, you still have to file something with uh, the IRS to get these credits direct paid Mm -hmm. to you. So, um, all right, well, so then Pat, maybe then going on in terms of 
if you start thinking about the guidance, we've talked about the income tax guidance a few times, but if it was that simple, we probably would not be having this podcast here. So what are some of the decisions or considerations companies have to think about where they do land in the different models and also maybe even what models could potentially apply? Sure. And just maybe one other point of clarification, at least for the the present conversation, we're really focused on the entity that would be the originator or the generator of the credit, the the company that's performing the activities that actually entitle them to the credit. We'll get to sort of the what happens if I buy one of these credits a little a little later. Um, And obviously, I think we talked a little bit about the types of entities we're not really going to focus on the not-for-profits. There, there is a model that exists in GAAP for them for basically um, non-reciprocal contributions from the government. So they would apply that guidance. It's ASC 958-605. Um, we're really focused here on the corporate for-profits. So if we focus first on the direct pay credits, again, maybe it's the lesser uh, in quantity of the credits, but still important to touch on. There are other programs that exist where you're entitled to some sort of um, compensation from the government, regardless of whether you have a tax liability or not. We refer to it as refundable credits or direct pay credits. It's not really new. This is just on a broader scale. But importantly, we would have consistently said and still do believe those are not within the scope of the income tax accounting guidance because whether you have an income tax liability or not doesn't drive whether or not you Mm -hmm. can get this credit. It really is more akin to a government grant or a contribution from the government. Unfortunately, at least to date, we don't really have a comprehensive U.S. GAAP framework for government grants, and so we have to figure out how we're going to account for these things. I would say historically, most U.S. GAAP preparers have looked to, there is a standard under IFRS, it's called IAS 20, it's specifically on government assistance, and it has a relatively fully baked model for how to account for government grants. I'd say that's generally what people look to. Technically, you could go and analogize to the not-for-profit guidance, although it does explicitly exclude from its scope government assistance to business entities, but nevertheless, it is a model that that you could apply. But again, most people in practice have looked to IAS 20. So that's sort of the uh, direct pay uh, scenario. If we talk about the transferable credits, again, relatively newer phenomenon. Um, We may have seen some of it at a state level in different contexts, but really not something um, so broad-based. So we don't have as much um, historical precedent, if you will. We don't have any explicit gap on it. And so this is the thing that probably spurred the most conversation around the time that the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. You know, how should we think about these things? There were a number of discussions at the profession level. We even had some discussions with the uh, FASB staff. There wasn't ultimately formal standard setting done. But the general outcome of all of that is essentially you've got a choice to make if you're dealing with a transferable credit. You can either account for them as part of your income tax uh, provision under the income tax accounting model, ASC 740, or um, you can analogize to the government grant uh, accounting either this IAS 20 that I alluded to before or 958.605. Again, I think in practice, most people are going to look to to IAS 20. One point to note, I guess, is if you did have some of these credits historically, like some of these other limited programs, and you had a policy that might inform your policy for these credits, if, you know, if they're similar in nature, you'd expect to apply a similar accounting policy. That's just sort of a general concept and gap. Um, But maybe that's probably where I'd leave it on just kind of the scoping decision at this point. I know we're going to try to drill deeper into some of the, you know, what that actually means in the accounting. Okay, great. And let me just ask one question. I think we said this before, but of the 13 credits that Jillian spoke about earlier, they're all either direct pay or transferable or both. None of them are just, I'm a taxpayer and I have to claim them on my tax return. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. I just want to make sure because if there were, then 
that would be one more model we would need to think about, right? So, okay, that's helpful. Thanks, Jillian. So then why don't we kind of run through these different models? And Jillian, before we talk about some of the interaction implications, it might be helpful just to refresh on the IAS 20 model for those maybe who haven't dealt with it before. It's been a while since they've dealt with it. Sure. Yeah. So Pat mentioned that luckily we do have some international guidance on grant accounting that I think a lot of companies have looked to in the past. It is a um, fairly comprehensive model, which again, I think is helpful as we start to navigate some of these new types of transactions. So within that model, really the first question that an entity will have to wrestle with is at what point do I, am I able to actually recognize the credit? So as we think about what that means sort of within the context of a grant or with these um, climate-related credits, right? It's really thinking about what are the conditions that I need to, to do or to perform to really be eligible to evidence that I've sort of done what the government has incentivized me to do. And the specific threshold within IAS 20 that you have to meet is a, a reasonable assurance threshold. So again, not a defined term probably that we see very often in U.S. GAAP, but Typically in practice, I think collectively we've interpreted that similar to the notion of probable. So thinking about like a a 75% type of threshold. And so I think in this case, companies will really need to make sure they're understanding what those specific conditions are for the credits that they expect they will be eligible for. So if we think back, we've mentioned the advanced manufacturing credit, the 45X a few times. Again, that one is specific to the production and sale of certain types of components, again, broadly in sort of the clean energy space. But again, there, one of the criteria is that those components are being produced domestically within the U.S. Again, that's specific to that credit doesn't necessarily apply to some of the other ones. So I think those types of considerations is what companies will have to think about first to determine sort of what period of time am I able to actually recognize this credit initially. So, Jillian, one thing we've mentioned a few times that some of these maybe you're going to be performing for a period of time. But if you know you have the contract, let's say you've ma- you manufactured the components, maybe they haven't been delivered. Like at what point in that cycle do you have to have completed all of that? And I know each of these credits may be different, but just trying to think through those sort of recognition thresholds. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And I, I think maybe one of the best ways to discuss it is maybe to highlight the difference between if we think about an investment tax credit, so one that is based on construction of a facility. So generally, the requirements there, there's a certain date by which that new asset has to be placed in service. So generally, I think that's one of the main criteria then that companies will look to, to have to meet to establish that they've met the conditions of that grant is I've done the construction or I'm close enough to constructing it that again, I'm reasonably assured that this asset is going to be placed in service sort of by the required date. I think if you contrast that to some of the production type credits where, to your point, Heather, maybe a company is producing something more on an ongoing basis, I think there then the act of producing that, whether it's a component like with the manufacturing credits or megawatt hours of energy from solar wind resources, I think that would usually be the activity, sort of the criteria. So once you've produced that megawatt hour of power, um, that would usually be the the trigger for the recognition. All right, that's very helpful. So obviously, it's going to be critical in making the this assessment, the reasonable assurance threshold, and making sure you really understand all the terms and conditions of the credits. And I know we talked before about some of these multipliers, and I think we'll probably get back into that. But you know, considering all of those before you're deciding your your recognition will be important. Once, let's presume for this purpose that you've met that threshold, then what does recognition look like? Right. So again, I think we've we've met the the threshold. So now I think what we have to think about is sort of what does that look like from an accounting perspective? So again, maybe just to level set here, we're going to have an asset of some type, right, for that credit. And I think that's where we've spent a lot of time talking about sort of what's the nature of that asset. So maybe we'll set that aside for now and talk about the credit side of the entry, which, again, I think at least under the IES 20 model is perhaps a little bit more straightforward. So the underlying principle within the government grant model and IES 20 is really to match the benefit 
that's received or the income, so to speak, from the grant with the related expenses. And so within that model, what that looks like from a recognition perspective really depends on what the grant is related to. And IS-20 essentially has sort of two types of grants with different recognition profiles. One is if the grant specifically relates to an asset. So again, going back, Heather, to that example of I have an ITC type of credit where I've constructed a facility, generally that would be an asset-related grant, in which case the related expense is the depreciation of that asset over time. And so from a recognition perspective, as you think about the timing of when that credit will come through from an income statement side, it's generally going to be over the life of that asset. So that income will be matched essentially to offset the related expense, the depreciation expense from that asset. So Jillian, before you go on to the other model, if I sort of think through all my debits and credits here, which can get confusing when we're not using a piece of paper, but on sort of day one, I've built my facility. So I have my, you know, my PP&E on the books, and now I'm going to receive the grant from the government. And in most cases, I'm in, if it's an asset-related grant, I would have received the cash likely before I could, I've fully depreciated this asset. So what do I do? I receive cash and I record a debit. What do I do with that credit before I even get to the income statement? Yeah. So, and again, in, in these cases, you may not actually have the cash yet, right? But as we think or about receivable, just, right, yeah. the, credits, the credit asset that we'll talk about. Oh, yes. About I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I told you it gets complicated yeah. as you start to think through these. So just on the credit side, though, so there are some options within IS-20. So for these asset-related grants, that initial entry can go typically one of two places. It can be offset against the actual PP&E asset, so to reduce that initial sort of um, carrying basis. Or it could be recorded separately, effectively as a separate deferred credit of sorts. And then the recognition, regardless of sort of where it ends up initially, is going to be over the life of that asset. So in that case, where that income comes through on the income statement may also be different, right? Again, if a company's chosen to initially record it as a reduction of the PP&E, that is going to reduce the depreciation that comes through on their income statement. Separately, then, if they've elected to essentially recognize it as a deferred credit of sorts, then that may come through as a separate income line item. They could also, in some cases, still reflect that um, as an offset to depreciation. So again, the uh, the number of options tends to multiply as you work through the model. But again, I think your your point, Heather, there is that first, even within the asset model, there are some different options that could look different in financial statements depending on some of those policy elections. Yeah, and I, we didn't have to get into all the nuance, but I do think this question of where to put it, I know at least with these old credits was always sort of a what's common practice. I'm assuming it's too early to say any practice in terms of if people are offsetting their PP&E or related asset or um, setting up this deferred credit. It's probably too early to say if there's a practice. I would say maybe a little bit too early, at least in this new regime. But and I think, Pat, you made the point earlier. One thing I think we would suggest companies should think about is if they have had policies in the past. So to your point, Heather, right, if a company's preference has been to record these asset types of grants or credits as a reduction of that PP&E, in a lot of cases, it probably makes sense for them to follow a similar policy for some of these new IRA credits as All well. Right. I probably have more questions on that, but let's go to the income, income-based grants then. So income-based grants perhaps might be a little bit easier to think through. Um, so again, same principle there where you're trying to um, match the recognition of the income from the grant with the expenses. So again, as we think about the typical nature of these, it's going to be something where I'm producing something over time. So the, the cost or the expense, right, is really my production cost. And so in that case, typically, you would recognize the benefit or the income from the credit in the same period that that production is happening. All right. That's helpful. And then I have a question. You rightfully sort of corrected me earlier when I just jumped straight to the got cash, because obviously with transferable credits, you may not actually be receiving cash. And so this question of what is 
the debit that you should be recording is more complicated than what I described. So what's the answer to that question of how do you, where do you record this if, if it's not necessarily cash on day one, which in any case it wouldn't be. So. Right. So that's the billion dollar, multi-billion dollar, whatever. <laughs> 500 billion. Is whatever right. amount we want to assign to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, this is where I think we've seen you may get a different answer, or likely will get a different answer if you have a credit that you're electing the direct pay option for versus the the transferable um, or selling option. So again, typically, maybe we'll step out of the IRA world for a minute. With a lot of other grants like we've seen in the past, you are getting cash either upfront or at some point in time from the government. And so figuring out the debit there is pretty easy, right? It's cash or it's a receivable that ultimately will turn into cash. And I think generally that's the way we would think about applying the IS-20 model to a direct pay credit as well. At some point in time, if you've made that election, you'll receive payment from the government. And so, again, I think generally a classification of that asset as a receivable, typically, again, at the notional amount. So sort of once you've determined which of those uh, bonus amounts you might qualify for, really at the full amount of the credit probably generally makes sense. We think about transferable credits, that's not the case there. So ultimately, the entity, if they sell a credit under that provision, will get cash, but it's not going to be coming from the government. It's ultimately going to be coming from that third party. And so because of that, they really don't have a receivable from the government. And instead, we would really think about that more like a non-monetary asset, which is also specifically talked about in the IES 20 guidance. And Again, we've got more optionality there um, under that model. But what IS-20 would tell you there is for a a non-monetary asset that you're receiving, you would generally record at fair value. In some instances, recognizing it at a nominal value, so typically zero or close to zero, may also be appropriate. But again, I think the key distinction is you generally probably wouldn't have a receivable or a traditional type of receivable if you're following the, the transferable option or the transferable model. So Jillian, again, I'm not trying to overly complicate a very complicated topic, but if I take a step back and think about this, if I'm, let's say, presuming not to use it on my tax return, and I'm going to transfer it, I would assume in most cases that the person I'm transferring it to is not going to pay me a hundred cents on the dollar because they need some incentive to enter into this. And so how do I think about that potential discount, particularly if I don't have an agreement already to transfer? And at least from what I've heard, and maybe there's more up-to-date information, there's not necessarily a very clear, I'll say, market right now that someone can say, oh, these always transfer for 80 cents or, or whatever the case is. So how do I think about that? Right, yeah. Another challenging area, right? And so I think generally what we would suggest companies think about is, you know, before they actually have contracts signed with a counterparty, there's going to be sort of some level of information likely that they will have to at least determine a reasonable range for what that discount rule will be. So to your point, Heather, very unlikely that anybody is going to receive, you know, full amount as they're going to transfer this. You know, I think as things have evolved over the past 12 months, that potential range of discount has moved around a little bit. I would say, you know, a few months ago we were hearing maybe it's close to 10%. I think, again, it's gone up and down particularly as the IRS and Treasury have released some new guidance helping companies think about sort of how some of the risks with these credits may transfer in those types of transactions. So it is going to be an estimate to the extent that companies don't actually have contracts in hand, but they have determined based on their own facts and circumstances that they do intend to transfer those credits. Um, and so again, I think something where they'll have to you know, use the best information that they have available at that point in time. All right. That's very helpful. So listening to all this, Pat, it sounds like following 740 has to be easier than what Jillian just described. But I know there's pros and cons to both. What would we think about if you were following a 740 model here? Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about that. You're right. It is easier because we have a comprehensive model there. But maybe just to close out on the kind of, I'll say, accounting for the asset side of it, right? We talked a little bit about 
what is the asset, how to think about valuation of it. That's also going to drive sort of the day two accounting for that asset. So how we think about remeasurement, impairment, um, and we have gap for those models. So sort of once you land on what kind of an asset it is, that's probably going to inform then that that day two accounting. Ultimately, if you do transfer it, that's another transaction that you have to think about. Um, you might have a gain or loss there. Where does that gain or loss go? Um, and then also the cash flow classification of that trade. And I, I guess on the as, a far, as it relates to the gain or loss, I think, again, not explicit gap here, but just logic would sort of say, well, probably that same place that you recognize the initial income from the credit would be a logical place to put that gain or loss. It gets a little interesting here because if you think about the transferable credit, one option might still be to use it on your tax return, even though you've elected a policy of accounting for it like a government grant. So that gets even a little bit more interesting. And we and there's some other guidance out there about how to maybe think about where you want to put the the P&L in that scenario. But to just to keep it simple, assuming you transfer it, I think a logical place to put that would be kind of in the same place that you put the um, the original benefit from the credit. And then on the cash flow, the nature of the assets really going to drive how you think about that sale. If it's um, more akin to call it an asset I'm holding, kind of another asset, an intangible of sorts. Normally, we'd say the sale of that would be an investing cash flow. Um, if it's just some sort of other asset, maybe there's an argument to call that an operating cash flow. I think it really just probably depends a little bit on the um, the timing and, and, the, and the nature of how you've uh, characterized that asset. So I would say these are all decisions that are going to need to be made, um, you know, sort of they're all interpretations, if you will, of the literature, and we don't really have you know, well-established practice at this point, but just to sort of point out, those are things people need to think about. So I think that's really helpful, Pat. And actually now I'm going to ask a follow-up and then we'll come back to 740. But, you know, Jillian made the point earlier that this is sort of a non-monetary asset, but are we expecting then that this is going to be some type of other asset often that and these are often, I would assume, material enough that they're just going to get a separate label? Or how, do we have, again, a sense for how people are going to actually classify these on the balance sheet? I think likely from that perspective, Heather, there likely will be some diversity out there. Again, right? I think your point on materiality, right? I think these are going to be coming in at varying amounts mm -hmm. for different companies. And so how they think about you know, the initial classification decision, I think it's probably step one. And again, that could be intangible, it could be an, an other type of asset. And then from a presentation perspective, right, I think generally, depending on the magnitude of these, right, may get sort of rolled up into a larger caption from a balance sheet perspective, um, that may be more uh, entity specific. And then, Pat, maybe I should also clarify before we get to 740, this discussion on the debit, only pertains to this IAS 20 discussion, or you are going to wind up with the same kind of debit question with 740? Then you just have a tax receivable. Right. Yeah. The, the, the questions and sort of all the things we were talking about before is really only, those are only decisions if you find yourself in this IAS 20 space. Once you're in the you know, 740 box, you're fully in the 740 box. All right. So let's run through that then and what kind of you need to think about there. Yeah, so I guess the couple of things to highlight the key sort of features of the income tax accounting model, if you think of these as a tax credit, a tax credit fundamentally is essentially a right to get a reduction in your tax liability, but it's only good to you if you have a tax liability. So there's a realizability assessment. The income tax model has a, a realizability realizability framework. We refer to it as the valuation allowance for deferred tax assets. This just becomes part of that whole analysis. So it's not necessarily specific to the credit. You would look at you know all of your potential sources of future taxable income and assessing whether you could realize that. The one wrinkle here is, for example, on these transferable credits, if I'm accounting for them in 740, I might still be able to transfer them. 
And so the question is, how should I think about that possible transfer in this realizability assessment? And there's a choice to make there. You can either consider that potential transfer as a source of realization or because technically, whatever those proceeds are, they are not taxable income. And the 740 framework is really just built around assessing the probability of future taxable income. You could ignore the possible transfer and just solely focus on your own ability to generate future taxable income. We'd say that's an accounting policy decision that you would make to go one way or the other. I'm either going to look to that potential sale of the credit or not. And then you would do your valuation allowance assessment on that basis. The other item you need to think about then is, okay, yes, I'm accounting for it in the tax line. Normally, then everything just proceeds following that model. But again, with these transferable credits, there is still the possibility that I could transfer them to a third party and likely at some amount other than the notional amount of the credit, which is the only measurement concept we have in the income tax guidance, right? If it's a $100 credit, mm-hmm. it goes on the balance sheet as a $100 deferred tax asset. If if I end up selling it for 95 what do I do with that $5 delta? There again, there's a choice to make. You can either account for that through the tax provision as an adjustment to your income tax expense, that $5 loss effectively, or you could pull it out of the tax line and say that's not really related to my taxes, that's some sort of other expense on the income statement. But again, an accounting policy decision. So let me rewind all the way to the beginning of this discussion. Well, maybe not all the way to the beginning, but earlier in the conversation, when we talked about deciding between following 740 and following IS-20. And I just want to make sure we kind of pull all these pieces together. So if I'm dealing with a transferable credit, it seems like there's sort of three scenarios. I, I'm positive I'm going to transfer it. I'm, I'm going to use the word positive slightly lighter because I'm almost positive that I'm going to use it myself because there's always then that possibility you're going to transfer it. Or I really don't know. I, on day one, when I generate the credit. And Pat, just to confirm then that no matter where you are in those three buckets, you are going to make an election. Do I follow 740 or do I follow IAS 20? Or if you're using it on, if you know you're using it on your tax return, are you in 740? No, so that's a really good clarification point, and this was part of some of the conversations we had early on here. The view is you need to make a decision about your accounting policy for the credit based on the nature of the credit. Regardless of your intended monetization strategy, you're either going to view it as this is akin to a government grant and I'm going to account for it following that model, or this is part of my income tax provision and I'm going to apply ASC 740. It's not an intent-based model. All right. I think that's really helpful. And then my follow-up question is, if I'm a company, and we've made the point a few times that you should look to pass policy, and I think for many, many companies, if they do that, they will find they do have past practice, um, even if maybe not recent practice. But if I'm, let's say, a clean sheet of paper thinking this through, is it too soon to say there's pros and cons of the different models, other than people are probably more familiar on the surface, at least, with 740? So while I I said clearly I don't think there's any appetite for what I'll call an intent-based model, I think if you are focused on what do I think the best reporting for these credits is, I do think it would be appropriate to look at your circumstances. If you really don't have any prospects of having a tax liability and you fully intend to monetize these credits through transfer, I think there's a strong argument to say recognizing these outside of the income tax provision is more consistent with how those credits will be monetized in your circumstances. And Pat, if I pause you on that one, because that what you made the point about realizability And if you are not generating taxable income, you are automatically looking to transfer for your realizability, and that feels a little inconsistent. Is that fair fair enough? Yes, I I, I think that's reasonable, and so that's I think just part of that, like what makes sense evaluation. Again, I don't think you're necessarily bound by that, but it, it sort of seems like logically you might think that way. 
the other thing, Pat, I would say too is I think it's important for companies to consider all of the types of credits that they may actually be eligible for. Because like we talked about, there's a few of them that are a little bit more nuanced where because they have that direct pay option for certain years under the, the credit life, they're automatically going to be out of 740. So then I think we've seen some companies say, well, wait a minute, if I know I have some credits that I'm forced to follow the grant model, then if I have others where maybe I'm not forced into it, but just holistically, it probably makes sense for all of my credits to follow that same model instead of having some that I account for as a grant and others then that I account for sort of through my tax provision, because I think that could get even more challenging for somebody to sort of understand what's going on there. So that may be the other piece to think about is sort of like what's in a company's credit portfolio and, you know, how do some of these decisions relate to one another. I think that's a really good point, Julian. And I think, Julian, that also hits on the point where disclosure, and I, we always get to disclosure at some point, but I'll just at least make a pitch here, that disclosure of what your policies are and all of these different policy elections that you've made is going to be critically important here. All right. Well, I know I keep pulling us into these different directions, but before we go to the discussion of what to do if I'm the purchaser, I do want to make sure we finish income tax because there is a, a little bit more to, that you need to think about here. Um, I, I think I jumped the gun on saying it was completely simple. So, Pat, what yeah. other reminders would but you have? It, maybe to be fair, it's only simple because we actually have a codified gap framework for it that people might be more familiar with. But just to sort of complete the comparison between the IAS 20 model. So our recognition threshold, Julian talked about the reasonably assured threshold under IAS 20. The income tax framework is what we are all familiar with maybe in sort of the income tax uncertainty context. We have a position. We think it's more likely than not of being sustained on the technical merits. And then we have a measurement framework that says we're going to recognize the maximum amount of benefit that has a cumulative probability of greater than 50%. Again, that's a judgment. I mean, obviously, if you feel like you've gotten to reasonable assurance, you've met the conditions in the law to receive the credit, ordinarily we'd say, okay, you would anticipate the full amount of the credit. I'm sure there are some nuances in all of these credits um, to the extent any of them are based on the actual costs you incur, making sure you have the right costs incorporated there will be important. But just to be clear, that's sort of the recognition framework you'd be thinking about. Um, Similar to this notion of sort of asset-related grants or grants related to income, the income tax framework sort of distinguishes between investment tax credits or ITCs and their specific literature for that and sort of all the other credits that almost by default just end up being part of your current or annual tax provision. Sometimes we call those production tax credits or PTCs. The ITC model under the tax accounting framework actually ends up being pretty similar to the asset-related grant model under IAS 20. I mean, you do have the option of just basically accounting for an ITC like any other tax credit and running it all through the tax provision in the year you get it. Um, But there's specific guidance around ITCs that also allows you to treat that as essentially a either reduction of the cost of the asset that you've constructed or um, as some sort of deferred credit that you then amortize into income over the life of the asset. Again, either as a reduction to depreciation expense or as a reduction to tax expense, but over the period of the asset's life. So that's the sort of day two accounting, if you will, on the uh, on the tax side. And then obviously where it goes in the income statement sort of by default, it's all in the tax line unless you're applying this ITC model, um, which we call the deferral method under the ITC model. And you could account for that then in pre-tax and it looks exactly like then the accounting for an asset-related grant under IS 20. Yeah, some very old accounting guidance that yes. got codified at 740 yes. over that. So, yeah. all right. So we've been really, as you guys said up front, we've been focused then on the generator of the credits. But in order to transfer the credits, you also have to have a purchaser. And so in terms of the model for the purchaser, what do they need to think about? This was a real tease, right, for the people who are waiting around for <laughs> exactly. this, right? So. Well, we'll make sure there's some timestamps <laughs> so they can find it. Um Yeah, so actually here we also do have gap. There's actually explicit gap in uh, 
ASC 740 when you purchase tax benefits from another party. And so basically that's what this would be is the purchase of a tax benefit. Obviously, I think the expectation is somebody's going to purchase these for less than their notional amount, right? If the only thing you can do is turn it into the government for cash versus just pay them cash, you know, there's no point in paying the third party the same amount of cash you'd pay the government. So there's going to be some delta between the credit you can actually put mm-hmm. on your return versus the amount of cash you paid for it. Um, the model basically says, well, that difference, that discount is deferred until you actually realize the benefit of that credit on your tax return. And then you would reflect that additional income in the income tax line at that point. And to be clear, when we say reflect in your tax return, is it the, would you recognize it in your financial statements in the year the tax return relates to, or when you actually put it? It says when you, when you actually realize the benefit of the credit. So meaning you've, been able to reduce an income tax liability with the credit. All right. And one, well, I have a couple of follow-up questions on this, but one of them is it's interesting that we started this by saying we haven't really seen a lot of transferable credits and, you know, this isn't necessarily common. And yet we actually have a model in 740 of what to do when you buy um, tax attributes. So is there other circumstances this would come into play or were they just that ahead forward thinking? This guidance comes from an old EITF issue. And I don't remember exactly the circumstances. I think it was actually in a, a regime outside the U.S. where this had arisen. And so there was a question posed that was then answered and it ultimately got codified. So it was just sort of, again, a little bit of a different era, but um, it was sort of a maybe an ad hoc issue. But we do have gap now for how to account for these. Wow. And if someone wanted to go look for this specific guidance. Yep. It's uh, it's an ASC 740, uh, specifically 740-10-25-52. And there's a related example that's case F. Do you need to bother reading A through E to get the, the gist of F? I don't think so. I think it's fairly specific. All right. Well, it's definitely uh, helpful and uh, interesting that that guidance is out there. And it'll be, I think, interesting once we start to see these flowing through people's um, financial statements. Now, I alluded earlier to disclosure and I think controls as well. I was reminded yesterday by someone that controls is always an important part of all of this. And so just any sort of top level reminders you would have from either a disclosure or control perspective that we can leave the audience with? Well, we're probably embedded throughout. I mean, there are obviously a number of judgments you need to make on the accounting policy side. I think Jillian, you alluded to making sure you really understand the terms and conditions of the credits. Um, certainly if you're going to be estimating the value of these credits, you know, that potentially could be a key estimate that you need to have some controls around. I mean, those are just the couple that come to mind. I don't know, Julian, if you others. Yeah. And I think I agree with Pat from a controls perspective. I think the other important piece here too, is there's likely going to be some operational decisions that companies are going to have to think about too, maybe even to help them make an informed decision on which model, right? So, you know, whether you're going to follow the, the tax model or not, likely there's going to need to be some involvement with the tax folks, right, who are involved in the modeling and sort of what are we thinking about, you know, five, 10 years out as we're expecting to generate some of these credits. Um, and then I think from a disclosure perspective, Heather, interestingly enough, while we don't have an accounting model under U.S. GAAP for government grants, we do actually have some specific disclosure guidance that recently became effective. So I think that will be helpful for companies that are applying that model um, because there are some specific requirements. I think most of the things we would think of typical disclosure items, so the you know, types of the grants or the credits they're receiving, the magnitude and nature of those, and then really importantly, where in the financial statements are the amounts coming through. So again, whether I think you're in the grant model or the income tax model, at least from a disclosure perspective, there's likely a, a good set of guidelines for companies to follow on that side. All right. That's very helpful. And then I would think anyone that has made it to this point in the podcast is interested enough that they're going to want more information. So what's the best place? What is the best place to go look? So I would direct people to the in-depth that we published, which goes through both of the models that Pat and I talked about, 
also has a, a good summary of the specifics on the credits. And then maybe for all the really interested accountants has a number of examples that actually go through the journal entries. So for folks that are more visual, I think looking through those examples can be helpful too. All right. Well, I think anyone looking at that will be very thankful to you, Pat, and the team that worked on that in depth, because there's definitely a lot of information there. So this is a great topic. I'm sure there's going to be follow up, but really appreciate the two of you joining me today. Thanks so much for coming on. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.